This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Rex Factor. William Rufus. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. Welcome to another X Factor, reviewing every king from and queen, from yep. Alfred to Elizabeth II. Uh, reviewing them on battliness, scandal, subjectivity, would you want to be a subject to them, as well as how long they rule and how many kids they have when they die. So we'll end up with a scale, and we can tell you categorically, once for all, who was the greatest king, but importantly, who had that special something, the Rex Factor. Which we'll define a little bit more when we come to the end of the show. But first of all, this week, we're on to William Rufus. Ginger. Well, we'll come almost <laughs> straight to that. Um, remember last time we did William the Conqueror, another addition to the Rex, canon fa- mm. Rex Factor canon. Mm. Um, he conquered England, won the Battle of Hastings in 1066, but then cemented the Norman conquest for the next 20 years quite brutally, yeah. so that now Normandy and England ruled by one chap. And we gave it to him, but for some reason, begrudgingly, but he was, he was there, definitely. We didn't feel that we liked him more, as you said, that we really knew him. Yeah. And I think we'll find quite a different uh, character and with William son, Rufus. This is his son, presumably. Yes, yeah, so he's born William Rufus in 1060, son of William I and Matilda of Flanders, and he becomes king in 1087, so he's about 27 years old. Okay. Um, relation to Elizabeth II, he is the 24th great-grand-uncle. I like that. I like that's a nice little stat. I like those numbers. Yeah. So uh, his appearance, as you just said, Ginger, mm. and as I think on the card, it will show him as we haven't got. But I think that again, he has red hair on that. Is this lie? You're going to blow this out of the water? Well, this is the description given by William of Malmesbury. Right. He was well set. His complexion florid. His hair yellow. Of open countenance, different coloured eyes, varying with certain glittering specks, of astonishing strength, though not very tall, and his belly rather projecting. I don't believe him. Because that is one of the only two things I know about this chap, <laughs> how he died. And don't so blow that one. I'm going to meet him in the middle and say he was a strawberry blonde. Maybe he was strawberry blonde. And he was French, so yeah, he'd have said it like that. Indeed. Um, the alternative actually might be that he had rosy cheeks. Mm. So he was, sort of, he was a Viking descent, so a North man. When he drinks a bit, when he gets cross, which he did, mm. maybe his, his cheeks... Oh, yeah, no, I, my history teacher at school remember him saying that. They used to get... That was maybe an explanation for it. They used mm. to get really, really angry. The, um, or, or the old copper beard phenomenon. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, that is true, blonde hair, ginger beard. But Rufus, what's the, what's the Rufus bit? Is that, is that it, is the red, but yeah, the suggestion that is that it's, it's maybe it, red-faced right, rather than red-haired. Okay. Yeah, okay. But he's William II. Mm. And so now that from the Normans, we discussed this before, why Edwards weren't 1, 2, and 3 yeah. that we had before. It's after the Normans that they start to we start doing our numbers. number. Yeah. But when we have a nickname like Rufus. We can start we writing down what the, um, if we, from our start date, what they'd actually be. Because there's only two or three names, isn't there? That it's only the Edwards. Oh, it's only Edwards. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you don't get me Athelstan's after you. Yeah. Anyway, 
Um, generally, he's often summarised as a very bad king and someone who was not mourned at all. So Anglo-Saxon Chronicles said he was hateful to almost all his people and odious to God. Oh, Christ. However, it's worth noting the sources, uh, the sort of contemporary sources, all written by monks and clerics, and they're all very biased against William. So the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles written by monks, uh, Eadma, who was a major eyewitness source, uh, was the biographer of the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was called Anselm, mm. and they had, as we'll see, a huge coming together. And William of Malmesbury and Orderic Vitalis are also quite prudish clerics. Yeah. So they disapprove of a lot of what William does, and consequently they write him as bad in history. He should have done, um, commissioned his own, like, uh, what's the name? Like Alfred and his Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then, then they'd have uh, got all Alistair Campbell on their ass. Indeed, but he didn't, so he got uh, yeah, messed over chat. by them. What? Anyway, important thing with William is the rivalry of the three brothers, because William isn't the eldest son of William the Conqueror. Oh, bit weird. He's the second. So the oldest is Robert, who's eight years older than William, and in turn, he is ten years older than Henry. And they have uh, quite a big rivalry. Uh, but William the Conqueror didn't like Robert very much, for some reason. He nicknamed him Kurt Hose, which means short boots. Oh, you don't want to be called that. In public. So he really put his son down quite a bit. Why does he mean short boots? Because uh, he was a shorty. Oh, right. OK, right. He wasn't wearing his heels. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then in 1080, Rufus and Henry sneaked up into Robert's billets, where he was with his troops... Um, went up onto a balcony and urinated down at him, or through a chain pot or something. No, I heard that. That's bit of really, a joke. That... Had a big fight, yeah. so the conqueror had to come along and break up the yeah. fight. Yeah. Um, and directly after that, Robert went off uh, with his troops, tried to attack the royal city uh, at Rouen, either the Norman mm -hmm. city. Yeah. Got repulsed, but this saw Robert and his father really at odds. And after the mother, who preferred Robert, died in 1083, they were pretty much permanently split. So when William the Conqueror dies in 1087, he doesn't really want to give anything to Robert. Mm. But he knows he kind of has to. So what he does is he splits it. So Normandy goes to Robert, but England goes to William Rufus. That's interesting then that um, William saw, saw the bigger prize as England rather than his sort of homeland. Um, I'm not sure if that was how he thought about it or if he thought in terms of where it was easier. His, um, his Archbishop of Canterbury, Lanfranc, was, um, they were very close, and he'd been the tutor of William Rufus, so it might have been that he saw that as a more natural oh, right. territory yeah. for yeah. William. And then this is a split, Then so then we're no longer looking at Normandy. Yeah, so what happens then is he gives a letter um, that he's written to Lanfranc, and he hands it to Rufus and says, go off, give this to Lanfranc, and you'll be king. So Rufus rushes off gives it to him, and he gets uh, a coronation ceremony conducted in Westminster Abbey. And all official. All official, he's okay. king. However, uh, very soon, the uh, nobles rebel against this. So in 1088, just one year later, um, they try and get rid of him. Because they don't like the fact that they've got land in England and land in Normandy, and it's now under two different lords. Oh, so they've got to give um, yeah, swear oaths to both. Yeah, and there's a problem is that if they support one, they'll get punished by the yeah, other, so yeah. they're going to lose out. So they decide it'd be much better if they just had one ruler for both, and they decide that Robert is the more amenable, pliable one, as opposed to Rufus. Does so, anyone, Do we know what Robert did wrong? What he did wrong? I'm not sure what he did wrong to William no. the Conqueror and why he doesn't like him, but he obviously, mm. they just didn't get on for what some reason. Anyway, so Odo of Bayo, who's the main chap, who's a half-brother of William the Conqueror, mm -hmm. it was his deathbed wish, William, that he would get released. So Odo releases him, and then a few months later, 
he uh, leads this rebellion against him. <laughs> Not very grateful. No. Um, so they rebel, um, go off, take a few castles, do a bit of raiding, uh, but Robert isn't able to get across the channel with his men. So it all gets a bit lost for them. William Rufus takes decisive action, besieges Odo at Pevensey Castle, captures him, then takes Rochester Castle, rebellion quelled. Right. But he's quite, as we've seen with William the Conqueror, quite merciful to the nobles, so Odo gets sent off into exile, but all the others are restored to their position. Oh, OK. But that's Rufus doing that? Rufus doing that. Much like his dad, then. Yeah. Although, again, you've got that thing of if he punishes them in England, then their family in Normandy is probably going to kick off, so you have to have this awkward balance. Yeah, it's not working, is it? Mm. Anyway, it does a bit of military campaigning, Rufus, so he... Uh, extends the influence in Scotland. So, 1091, Malcolm, the King of Scotland, helped by our old friend Edgar the Eastling. Uh, oh, let's show a younger chap. Yeah, grandson he, of Edmund yeah, Ironside. Yeah. They rebel, try and invade Norman, Northumbria, but they're pushed back by Rufus. And then Malcolm gets killed in 1093 uh, at the Battle of Annick. Lots of toing and froing between Scottish claimants to the throne until eventually um, the new king, also called Edgar, and confusingly the nephew of Edgar the Eastling. <laughs> becomes the King of Scotland, and he submits to Rufus. So Rufus has now sort of got so superiority a, over, over Scotland. Scottish now. kings? Yeah. Not in the sense of King of Britain, but... But they're, they're recognising he's the more powerful one. Yeah, around. leave him alone now. Yeah. And then similarly in France, 1091, he invades uh, Norman territory and forces Robert to cede some of his lands. Right. And then they briefly come to terms with each other, at which point Henry starts to rebel, so then they start fighting against him. Together? Yeah. And then that all peters out, and then William's sort of with Henry again against Robert. It's quite confusing, but really they never have proper all-out war and all-out battles. They mm. just seem to do lots of campaigning and besieging, and then eventually they all just give up and give William a bit of land. And he goes home. Mm, it sounds like proper brother squabbles, not an actual yeah, fight. Exactly. But just a little There's yeah. no chance that they're gonna kill each other. Yeah. They're just kind of a bit of a a bit of a barn. Mm. Anyway, ten ninety five he has another rebellion in England, uh, where there's a plot to have him killed and replaced not with Robert, but with his cousin, who's called Stephen of Umar. Mm. But again, deals with that very quickly, very succinctly. So he's doing alright, he's yeah, pretty happy. Yeah, yeah, he's getting there, yeah. His main problem really is with the church. As we said, the clergy hate him, partly because he has a habit of leaving their sees, their sort of bishoprics and abbeys, vacant. And he does that because if there's no one there in charge, like an archbishop or an, uh, an abbot, that means that Rufus can just take all the money that will be produced and going to the abbey and just keep it for himself. And he has to appoint them. And he has to appoint them, right. and he chooses not to, so he can take the money. Yeah. Right. So they're not too happy about that. And in particular, he has a huge run-ins with Anselm, who is eventually appointed Archbishop of Canterbury. He was a Gregorian reformist, which we'll explain in more detail later, but basically he believed his first duty was to the Pope and then the King, whereas William Rufus thought, I'm top, then oh, you can talk about your Pope. Eternal battle until... Well, not eternal until... Henry VIII. Henry. He's very much yeah. redolent of Henry VIII, yeah. Um, anyway... He manages to pretty much deal with that quite well. We'll come to it in more detail, mm. but he's able to overcome Anselm to a large extent. 1096 things really look up, because Urban II, the Pope, decides that he wants a crusade. Yeah. So it's the first crusade, and Robert decides that he wants to go off and do his business for the Pope. But he doesn't have much money, so what happens is that William, who owns big rich England, pays him, I think it's about 7,000 pieces of silver, which is like a quarter 
of England's annual income. And he gives it to Robert, in return for which, effectively, Robert mortgages Normandy. So while Robert's off campaigning on the Crusades, William is now controlling Normandy as well as England. Ah. Mm. ah and it gets him out of his hair. Indeed. Brilliant. So that's worked quite well. And he then spends most of his final years in Normandy. Major success, he secures the territory of Maine. Uh, and he's at the height of his power, so he's thinking about mortgaging Aquitaine under a similar agreement, thinking about conquering a French land called Poitou, also looking out to Ireland and thinking, yeah, I might have a bit of this. Like a bit of that. And even thinking about the whole of France, thinking maybe I could put all these territories together. Right. So this is in 1100, and then he goes hunting in the New Forest. Ah, yes. Inevitable. Inevitably. (laughs) (laughs) Um... It's all a little bit Julius Caesar, actually. So apparently he had a dream during the night that he was being bled. Yeah. You know, when you get cut and it's treatment, yeah. yeah. And in his dream, a spurt of blood shot up to the sky, overcast the sun and turned the day to darkness. Which freaked him out a bit. So he woke up, ordered lights to be brought in and didn't let his servants leave him for the whole night. They had to stay with him. He was really spooked by the dream. Mm. And then it bothered him enough that he didn't go hunting in the morning, he sort of stayed away from it, but then he had some food, had some drinks, calmed down a bit, and then decided, off hunting. So, preparing to go out hunting with a party of various Mm. people, including his brother Henry, uh, he was offered six arrows, and he kept four of them, but then he gave the other two to a chap called Walter Tyrrell. Yeah. To whom he said, it is only right that the sharpest arrows should be given to the man who knows how to shoot the deadliest shots. They go out hunting. Walter Tyrrell aims his shot at a stag, misses, but hits William. Hits him in the chest. Uh, apparently he doesn't utter a word, broke off the shaft of the arrow that was coming out of his body, and then fell down, effectively, onto the arrow, pushing it further in. Yeah. With the extent that he pretty Just much dies. on the spot. Straight off. Yeah. There's so much controversy. Well, indeed. What happens next is the nobles just rush off to secure their lands because it's always quite chaotic at this stage where the king dies and they've got all this territory. Henry rushes off to get the treasury and makes himself king. Uh, Walter Till just runs off. Yeah. Pretty scared. And Rufus just left there, so it's left to a charcoal burner called Perkis to put him on a cart and then take him off to Winchester. Wow. Where he's buried with very little ceremony on account of the fact that Winchester is one of the sees who doesn't have a bishop in place. <laughs> so it's just a lowly prior. I This chap Tyrrell was in the pay of Henry. Well, big debate, accident or murder. Yeah, it's murder. It's very convenient for Henry, obviously, yeah. because he becomes king. Mm. Um, it's a high-risk activity, so it's very good cover for an assassin. Very easy to accidentally shoot somebody yeah. dead. Yeah. Uh, Henry shows himself to be pretty capable of being ruthless, so we'll see next time with Henry, he imprisons Robert. So he's more than capable of acting against his family. Um, Historian Emma Mason suggested that it might be a French plot, because he said he was planning to invade Poitou, and they knew about this. And given how powerful he was and how rich England was, etc., it's a pretty good chance that he would have been successful. Right. So she suggested that maybe they had paid Walter Tyrrell to do this for them. Or maybe even they were in league with Henry, because Henry then doesn't invade. So it all stops. However, hunting accidents are very common. It happened to the Conqueror's second oldest son, Richard. So Rufus was actually the third oldest, but the young Richard was killed in the New Forest. (laughs) And then Robert's son had also been killed in the New Forest. uh, Just don't go to the New Forest. Very dangerous New Forest, still there, still dangerous. And indeed there is a stone, the Rufus Stone. Is it really? Yeah, of marking the point at which he died. Oh, I'd love to see that. 
just uh, by a pub called Alter Tyrrell, I believe. <laughs> oh, oh and even in death, yes. <laughs> <laughs> he gets a stone, the other chap gets a pub. Yeah. However, all the sources suggest it's just an accident, though that might be because they write yeah. during the reign yeah. of Henry. But a lot of historians also suggest it probably was an accident. But mm. All a bit fishy, but that's probably for next time in Scandal for Henry. Yeah, OK, yeah, fair enough. For William, that's him, he's dead. So now we've got to review him. Let's go. Battleliness. So we'll each give ten, yeah. so that's a total of yeah. twenty. Battleliness for William, we've got quite a few things to go over. Let's go. Firstly, his reputation for being a great chivalric knight. So a chivalrous chap. Apparently he was of great strength, trained in all the knightly skills, such as riding with a lance... Always insisted on being the first into any fight. So if he saw an enemy, he had to volunteer and he had to go out and fight instantly. He just went straight off. So he had very much these sort of chivalrous values. And above all, he was really generous to his men. So that he had such a reputation that people really flocked. To and wanted fight to fight with him. him, yeah. And apparently he always ransomed his knights whenever they got captured, mm. which is nice of him. Impressively, apparently, he was the inspiration for Geoffrey of Monmouth who wrote a sort of history of Britons and has a lot of mythology, including the King Arthur legend. Right. Apparently he was the inspiration for King Arthur in Geoffrey of Monmouth's characterisation, his sort of chivalrous... So it's really only the um, uh, uh, the church that's doing him down here, writing his bad history, because the rest of them... Yeah, and interestingly, not. the church recognised him as a great chivalric knight, but we'll see with scandal. The problem mm. is that chivalry isn't yet this Christian... Yeah, militia code of conduct, idea, so you yeah. could be a great knight. That comes with the crusade, so I suppose it's starting. Yeah, it? so William isn't quite involved in that. Yeah. Anyway, a couple of examples of his chivalry and his good approach. Um, there was one time when he was in Mont Saint-Michel and he was besieging Henry. Mm. Uh, and he saw an enemy soldier, so on horse, he went straight off, broke off from where he was, went to tackle him, but was unhorsed. And he only avoided being killed when, as the guy was about to put the knife in, he said, stop you fool, I'm the king of England. <laughs> so the soldier says, sorry, thought you were only a knight. And yeah. uh, Rufus laughs, laughs uproariously and says, by the holy face of Luca, henceforth you shall be mine, and included in my role of honour, you shall receive the rewards of knighthood. So wow. he knights him. Where is that from? Um, that was in San... What, I mean, where did the... No, where, yeah. Well, this is the other great thing. The monks are appalled and fascinated by... Yeah. So they quote everything by William because he just says what he thinks all like the time. Modern so historians always quoting him yeah. very much. And so there, the holy face of Luca, that's his customary saying, his customary oath. So it's referring to this statue of the crucifix in the Italian town of Luca. But he just says it all the time. He says, by the holy face of Luca, I shall... <laughs> doesn't run dot, dot, dot. Done, does it? Oh. And then another one, 1099, when he was in England, he learned that Le Mans, which is one of his territories, was being attacked by rebels... So as soon as he heard about it, he declared, let us cross the sea to help our men. Gallops straight off to the coast. No consideration. Someone warns him that there's bad weather, he might want to be careful. To which he says, silence, fellow. You have never yet seen a king drown, and I'm certainly not going to be the first. Order the sailors to man the oars. And then, when told, shouldn't we wait until you've mustered an army and we're ready to fight? He says, I shall see who will follow me. Do you believe I won't have enough men? If I know my young warriors, they will join me even at the risk of shipwreck. So he's so confident yeah. in the loyalty that he's got that he just heads he... straight off and <laughs> waits for them to join him. So, chivalry, great knight, yeah. everyone thinks he's brilliant. In terms of what he actually does, you've got the 1088 rebellion that he puts down, which was a serious threat because there were six of the ten most powerful nobles in the country that were rebelling against him. Mm. 
and he's able to take Odo at Pevensey Castle. He takes Rochester Castle. So, you know, he's able yeah. to quell the rebellions. Yeah. 1095, similarly, that peters out pretty quickly. There's a little bit less mercy in this one. There's a chap called William of Ooh, EU, uh, who was forced to uh, challenge to trial by battle, which he lost. Uh, so consequently, he was blinded and castrated. Cool, oh, blimey. And uh, died of his wounds. Yeah. So I suppose, going back to the died by the eyes, he died by the... But nevertheless, in terms of military-wise, Rufus very decisive, puts it down quickly in the northeast before anyone can do anything. I think he built a castle opposite Bamber Castle. Yeah, yeah, nice castle. all sorts of things, very quickly put them down. Similarly, Scotland, we see again, he extends his influence there. Not a lot of direct fighting that he does, but he puts a castle in Carlisle in 1092. And this had been a very disputed sort of border territory, and still will be later, but at this point... That's the most dominance that an English king has really set over Scotland by building that castle that far north. Right. But he's laying down the gauntlet there. And similarly in France, we saw he got a bit of territory from Robert in Normandy. Um, and he does a bit more later when he gets Maine. The bad stuff for William is he never really fights a big all-out pitched battle. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, he's got all the, he's got all the gear, mm. but... Um, but doesn't have a chance to use it. It's like a chap who's just bought North Face hiking boots and he's living in the fens. Yeah. And it's difficult because at the time he's seen as a really great military knight, really respected, in some ways more respected than William of mm. contemporaries. He's really seen as a great knight, but he doesn't have the battles to go with it. So he's yeah. very powerful. He always goes off with his army, gets more territory, but it's not that kind of... It's not that kind of time, really, where they have those big battles, except obviously with the Crusades. But in Normandy, it's much more complicated and... CG. CG, yeah. yeah. So how are we going to score him there? Well, we can only score him what we've got to go on. I mean, I, I imagine if I were to pitch him against other kings, he'd do really rather well. Mm. But he didn't. So I cannot go beyond... A f- I can't go beyond five. Five for his preparation, the other five would be for success. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to go four. Mm. I'm going to go six, because although he doesn't have the big battles... He puts down the rebellions, he does a mm. bit of territory, he's always out there. And I think the chivalry stuff's pretty cool. Chivalry's pretty cool. And the, the Arthur yeah. inspiration is pretty cool. Um, so I'm going to give him a six, okay. you give him a four, that's a total of ten. Yeah, it's, it's alright. Mm. Anyway. Scandal. So, scandal. This is really where William's at home. And this is why <laughs> the monks hate him. Go on, I'm looking forward to this. Firstly, as we said, the vacant seas. This is, an, as in... Uh, Bishops and abbeys, not... No, Codstock crisis, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, leaving the seas vacant meant that he could take all the money for himself, and this was considered scandalous at the time, and the monks are oh, yeah. always petitioning him and saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, what are you yeah. doing? Um, Canterbury itself was vacant from 1089, when Lanfranc died, mm. until 1093, when he appointed Anselm. So what were these places doing? They just didn't, they had, didn't have they bishops? They just didn't have bishops or abbots or whatever. But they had people going in and yeah, doing Yeah, they had people doing stuff. stuff, but the money was going to William. Right. And he only appointed Anselm in 1093 because he was very ill and thought that he was dying and that he needed uh-huh. to make <laughs> he amends. He a ticket, yeah. yeah. So after he recovers, he yeah. just goes back to normal. So in 1100, there were two bishoprics that were vacant. That's a funny word. Indeed. <laughs> Including Winchester, which was obviously one of the wealthiest. And there were 12 abbeys vacant as well. Mm. And there was no sign that he was going to be filling them anytime soon. It's good scandal, that bit. Mm. Not very juicy. It's Not juicy. dry scandal. Dry scandal. It's textbook but scandal. Anyway, 
We discussed the next one beforehand because we weren't sure where to put it. We mm. put it in Scandal, but it's another one that's not very juicy. Yeah. Anselm. Yeah. Like Lanfranc, he's of sort of Norman Italian stock, great repute, a famous theologian. He uh, had a early ontological argument for the existence of God, which is a bit complicated and convoluted, but nevertheless he's famed not just for his deeds with William. He was appointed in 1093, and as we said earlier, he was a Gregorian, which meant that his first loyalty would sue the Pope, whereas William said, by the face of, holy face of Luther, Anselm must take second place to me because I am going to be my own archbishop. So clearly there's going yeah. to be a conflict of interests here. It's so reminiscent of Henry VIII. Or it really is, yeah. So it starts off, they don't get on at all right from the start. So 1093, once William was better, he's planning to do a bit of campaigning in France. Mm. So he's demanding contributions from all of his sort of vassals and leading clerics and nobles. And he was outraged when Anselm only offered him £500, which I guess wasn't anywhere near as much as everybody else. But what? Um, as a contribution, oh, right, yeah. for his, so he yeah. could raise money in his forces and whatnot. So he demanded more until, after lots of persuasion from the bishops, he eventually agreed to accept the original £500. Uh, at this point, Anselm offers him quite a lengthy homily on the superiority of free will offerings rather than offerings that are forced to be made and morality, and then said that he'd already given them money to the poor because William had refused it. He's trying his luck, this chap, he isn't he? He gave a low amount on purpose. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not too fond of him. Yeah, so Rufus uh, then snapped, You can keep your money, I've got enough of my own, clear off. And he didn't, not by the holy face of Luca? Not by the holy face they of Luca. Did. Too cross even for that. <laughs> Maybe he did. Uh, but the major issue was a thing called the investiture crisis. And this is how England now are very much part of European politics. And we see that the papacy starts to be more powerful. Mm. So I'm going to do a very quick background to the history of <laughs> how this all comes about. The central, there was a central Holy Roman Empire which was sort of Central Europe, dating from the period of Charlemagne, which is the early 9th yeah. century. And after Charlemagne, there was never this one unified territory that was called the Roman Empire, as mm. of old. Rather, it was lots of the different kingdoms and principalities and over which one of them would preside as an elected Holy Roman Emperor. So this isn't the Pope, this is a different thing to the Pope, and they were seen as being responsible for the protection of the Catholic Church. However, the papacy, the Pope, is at this time starting to press their claims to have more control over all things religious. Mm. So it's a very different position than we have now and then when we had under Henry VIII, where the Pope is all-powerful at this time. They're kind of under the thumb of the kings. Oh, right. But they don't want to be. They want to be uh, more powerful. Mm. So, in uh, 1056, there was a young emperor, Henry IV, Holy Roman Emperor, who was just a boy, so uh, Pope Gregory VII and his supporters took this opportunity to sort of free themselves from the kings. Um, so from that point on, the College of Cardinals would elect the Pope and not, as had been the case, the Emperor. And still goes on today. And still now uh, the College of the Cardinals. So previously the king had been choosing who would be Pope, now it's clerics. I did not know that. That's it is, it's only at this point... 1075, still Gregory VII, he issues uh, Dictatus Papi, which is canon law, claiming Catholic Church was established by God alone and the Pope was the sole universal power on earth, i.e. only the Pope has the authority to elect or invest a bishop, whereas previously it had been the king's rights who put yeah. his own bishops in place. Yeah, so there could be no more gaps. Indeed. Gregory VII dies in 1085, 
He's succeeded by, briefly, Victor III and then Urban II. However, it's complicated because Henry IV, when he grows up, the Holy Roman Emperor, mm-hmm. he doesn't like this, particularly because people are then trying to get rid of him because he opposes the Pope. So he elects a chap called Clement III as Pope. So we have two Popes. So there's an anti-Pope, which is Clement III, and then we have the actual Pope, which is Urban II. And they're competing to see who's going to win Urban out. Urban II and Crusade is Urban II. Yes. Like, no, so you've got two different Popes, yeah. technically, competing being Competing for the title of Pope. Indeed. Pope idol. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Our next show. <laughs> In England, the problem is, Anselm was a Gregorian. That's what I meant when I said Gregorian. Yeah. He believes in all of this. He recognises Urban II. And he hadn't received his investiture from the Pope, so he didn't feel he'd been properly elected as Archbishop. Rufus had not recognised Urban as the Pope, and he certainly didn't recognise this suggestion that the Pope was the one that got to decide who the bishops were, yeah. or who yeah. got the final say. Less money. Indeed. They try and resolve it in 1095, the council at Rockingham, but Anselm refuses to budge. Won't change his mind. William then negotiates in secret with Urban II, agrees to recognise him as Pope, but in return Urban says that he won't send any legates to England without permission. So basically William has to invite the Pope's men into the country, and William still has the sort of right of investiture. But why, so why did any of the other European um, king, although so you say, say Henry IV um, has set his own chap up, he has, but the problem Henry the Fourth is that his rivals have sought to oust him, so they actually set up a rival king for Henry the Fourth. So you've got a rival king supporting Urban and a rival pope um, supporting Henry. <laughs> yeah. So it's all a bit confused. It's but all England very confusing. Sort of sticks away from it. Well, yeah, and in Europe, it's really quite. It has a bad effect on the kings, and it's really destabilizing. Mm. So it's actually quite a threat. But ultimately, it gets resolved. Um, William tries to give. Uh, the pallium, the sort of sign of investiture to Anselm in person. Anselm refuses, and eventually they compromise when William leaves it and the altar at Canterbury, and then Anselm picks it up, and he is thus the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, I'd, have, I'd have tried to throw in a little bargaining thing with the Pope there, saying, agree to everything, but just get rid of this chap. He did want to. He did want to get rid of Anselm, but he was very popular amongst the yeah, other clerics, okay. and he couldn't really. However, in 1097... They come to blows again. William accuses him again of providing insufficient funds to knights and wants to fine him. And Anselm complains that he's blocking all the church reforms and he wants to go to Rome and seek the advice of the Pope. Uh, to which William says that if he goes, he won't be allowed back again. So William, uh, so Anselm goes. Brilliant. And Good, William uh, thus leaves him in I exile. I like this guy. Yeah. So 1097, Anselm in exile, and William leaves the sea vacant for the rest of the reign and takes in all the money. Oh, that's that period where it was empty... So it was empty from 1089 to 93, 93 and yeah. then from 97 oh, that's to the second 1100. Time, okay. yeah. right. So he's finally dealt with that. However, we now have the juicy stuff. No more church, although it's the church's view on it. Appearance of William. Covered it briefly, but his courtiers and himself attracted lots of criticism for their dress because they began to adopt fashionable um, clothes and styles from Europe, which the monks did not like. So apparently William was a dandy, dressed always in the height of fashion, however outrageous. The short tunics and the shoes with long points which curled like scorpion's tails aroused most criticism. He wore his blonde hair long, parted in the centre so as to leave his forehead shamelessly bare. So it's almost a bit like the Saxons, where we've got the long hair, the fancy looking, which the Normans had said was girlish and effeminate. William loves it. So he's very flamboyantly 
dressed chap. You to- you've totally changed the image I had of this guy in my head because when he was charging <laughs> off and didn't really care and everything, he did not look like he didn't have <laughs> gnome shoes on. No. I suspect he probably got changed when he went off campaigning. He didn't <laughs> yeah. turn up with bright yeah. yellow and pointy <laughs> shoes. Um, personality, as we said, the monks hate him, but they're clearly fascinated by him. Hence, all the direct quotes. And in particular, Anselm, or his biographer Eadmat, hated his sense of humour, which he shows a lot, whereas Rufus thought that his magnificence, his own magnificence, was his ability to lighten the mood with jokes. But I thought he, got, I thought he was an angry chap. He was an angry chap, but that was only when he got very angry, so most of the time he tried to control it, um, which the monks didn't like, because it was usually when they were disagreeing or he was being particularly outrageous that he just thought, I'll throw in a joke just to lighten the mood <laughs> with the old monks, yeah. and they don't like yeah. it. So his first meeting with Anselm, the first thing that Anselm does is start asking about his licentiousness. What does that mean? Uh, his uh, sort of sexual proclivity. Okay. Which he's not too happy about. And uh, Rufus wasn't too happy that this is pretty much the first thing that his new mm. archbishop says. But it says he laughs it off rather than delivers a crushing reply. So he tries to maintain fairly good relations. Likewise, when the bishops, um, unhappy at the vacant sees, suggested that prayers should be made throughout the country to inspire the king to appoint a new Archbishop of Canterbury before Anselm had been there. And again, William was pretty annoyed at the fact that they were challenging his authority so um, straightforwardly, but he instead said, Pray as you like, I will do as I please. No man's prayer will ever change my mind. By the holy face of Luca. By the holy face of Luca. (laughs) But it's probably fair to say in a public and a private face, so sort of to his friends he's probably quite affable, self-deprecating, but in private, when he really got annoyed, he could be very intimidating and fearsome face would go red, mm. as we said before, a very loud voice, and apparently he had something of an angry stutter, so he'd get a bit yeah, out of control. Words, yeah. Yeah. He was also extremely extravagant, so we said already about the shoes and the clothes. And generosity? But, yeah, there's one example where apparently a servant bought him a pair of shoes um, for a shilling, to which he shouted, you son of a whore, since when has a king got to wear shoes as cheap as that? Go and buy me some for a mark of silver, which apparently was 13 shillings and fourpence. Oh, you're much more expensive. So he's, he's very flamboyant, oh, very extravagant, yeah. and very shallow. <laughs> and indeed, his conduct uh, attracts the most criticism. So as he said, it's incomplete chivalry. Mm. So he's got treating his men well, lots of knights, but it's not a Christian militia. It doesn't have a moral code of conduct. And as we saw, he didn't go on the first crusade. He just stayed yeah. at home and took all the land while everybody else Killer. was doing the fighting. His knights are quite infamous for robbery and rape when they were out and about, and they weren't really controlled by William, which meant that they stayed loyal to him. So they would love him, but if you're a monk or a peasant, you probably don't really enjoy having William's army any time around you. And most difficult for him, in terms of winning the respect of the monks, was the fact that he didn't have a queen consort. He didn't have a queen. Partly because no-one was there to keep the court in order and being moral, that had a reputation for fornication and adultery. Most importantly, it's alleged that William was homosexual. Oh. A confirmed bachelor, if you will. And apparently not uncommon at the time among lots of soldiers who were out and about on their own for quite a while. Really? Apparently. Was that why he was having his, uh, what was it, lasciviousness? Licentiousness. Licentiousness So one of the things Anselm also said, I didn't want to preempt it, but Anselm also suggested holding a council to get rid of sodomy in the country, to which William sort of responded, what do you intend to gain by this? I intend to gain nothing, but God and perhaps you might gain something, to which William told him, by the holy face of (laughs) the go away. Yeah. 
right. Yeah, so it's suggested that he uh, he might have been uh, gay, and certainly the chroniclers, although not saying it outright, imply that he does uh, indulge in it a little bit, particularly because the courts were deliberately poorly lit. So it was quite dark, and you couldn't quite see always what was going on in the corners. Really? So it's a very scandalous place. Deliberately low mood light, <laughs> indeed. <Yeah. laughs> oh, priceless. Well, that's, that's quite a lot Absolutely. of scandal. Yeah, and um, Frank Barlow says, there's no actual evidence of a particular favourite, be it male or female, um, but lots of suggestions that he was fornicating away. So he says it may well be that he was bisexual and indiscriminate lecher. Right. So we've got upsetting the clergy with the seas, upsetting Anselm, but then... Really flamboyant, extravagant, effeminate, a bit gay or bisexual, mm. immoral court, all this sort of stuff. That's quite a lot of scandal. It's quite a lot of scandal, yeah. There's no one dramatic thing that we would see as hugely scandalous no. now. But obviously at the time, and even to be honest, 30 years ago, and in fact probably even now if there was a gay king, it would probably still be yeah, a bit Yeah, I'm sure it would. So it's quite good for scandal. It's brilliant. Yeah, how are we going to score him? High. I think so. Can I just say, yes. from the start of this podcast, I had basically William the Conqueror with red hair getting really angry, <laughs> and that's it. I've, I've, I'm in a totally different place now. <laughs> I've got a man dressed as a clown, <laughs> a little bit gay, um, quite funny. Yeah. I, I mean, it's madness. And, oh, okay, I'm going at seven. I, th- I think I'm going for seven as well, yeah. yeah. It's, it's no, there's no one big shocking yeah, thing, it's, but it's just lots and lots of good got stuff. got all the groundwork. So that's 14 for Scandal, which is our second highest. Only Edgar the Peaceable. Yeah, he was legendary. And, yeah, he yeah. took on nuns. Yeah. He, he really, yeah. That would really have upset the monks. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, not unless he had a go at the monks. <laughs> Indeed, maybe, <laughs> maybe that's the truth behind the story. Subjectivity. So this is whether you would want to be a subject of the king. Some good stuff. The investiture crisis, the stuff with Anselm, from a modern perspective, there's actually quite a lot of stuff we might sympathise here. On the one hand, Anselm seems pretty irritating, Mm. and Rufus is fairly restrained in how he deals with him. And indeed, as you said, it causes a lot of instability on mainland Europe, so actually the fact that William's able to get pretty good compromise is is a good good sign. And actually it also means that the king and the royal right in England is actually established quite well, whereas it isn't elsewhere. So it's almost like a prototype Henry VIII, except that he doesn't have the divorce, he doesn't have the big break, he just yeah, just wins. Yeah. See, but there's... Um, you'd, be, you'd be nervous. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, and another good thing, again, it's a religious thing again, he's quite cynical about religion. Apparently he was brought up amongst clerics and developed a bit of a rebellious attitude. So one thing was apparently he was very sceptical about trial by ordeal, which is yeah. when they had to go through something, get her hot rod or something against the skin, walking over coal fires, and if they weren't badly wounded or if it healed, then they were chosen by God, shown as innocent. And apparently 50 Englishmen were found innocent of breaking forest laws. And when he was told about this by trial of ordeal, he said, What's this? God's a just judge? Damn him, I say, who believes that after this. I swear by the holy face of Luca that from now on matters that can be bent by any man's nod shall be brought before my court, not God's. That's quite a good subjectivity thing then. Yeah, so he's got, you know, he's more sort of logical, secular. Step towards um, trial by peers. Indeed. Less good, very harsh uh, in terms of raising money, which is is probably his main love in life, is just extracting lots and lots of money out of England, particularly under a chap called Ranulf Flambard, uh, who was sort of 
it wasn't his treasurer or chief justice or whatever you call him, but he was sort of a prototype. Um, later Bishop of Durham. So the fact that William's there in England constantly until 1096, very different from William, conqueror, who spent most of his time in Normandy, this increases the pressure of royal government. His progresses around the country were probably like an invading army, not least if the soldiers were there and they were... Yeah, not, not good. And the wars, his campaigning, would have been very costly, mm. such as mortgaging off Normandy. That was done, raised through English taxes. Yeah, and he's, those little skirmishes with his brothers aren't going to... No, it's not going to be a peaceful attitude. Indeed. And so like, he does other things. He enlarges the royal hunting preserves, the forests, which means that Englishmen can't um, go there without permission because he's doing all this hunting. Tightens up the laws so there's a bit more punishment there. And so he doesn't really show a lot of care for England. He just sort of uses it to raise money and men for his wars. Has a bit of a laugh, really. Yeah, has a bit of a laugh. He doesn't really care about the subjects. He just uses yeah. them. But there's no that harrying happens. of the North in the way that no. William did, so it's uh, not... What did William get? William got four. Two each, that's pretty bad, isn't it? Mm. Um, it's not a dreadful time, but it's not a great time. I might give him four. Yeah, I... I'll give him three and a half. Because there's sort of some good stuff that you probably wouldn't have wanted to have been a subject a lot, but it's better than it had been previously, mm. and there's stuff there that was good... Down, it, the line. down the line. Exactly, yeah. 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 So that's seven and a half for subjectivity. Not great, but it's not terrible. Hard for these uh, these kings to get good subjectivity. Yeah. Largely because they don't care about it. Anyway, next up. Longevity. So 1087 to 1100, 13 years. Mm. Which, yeah, it's not bad, but he's, unlucky. he's only about 40 when he dies. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty much old, the, William was when he started. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it was all ahead of him, really. Mm. Bad luck. Indeed. Oh, he did. The, he did. Yeah, he got the old arrow in the arrow in the chest thing. Yeah. Bolt rather. Dynasty, not the program. Didn't marry. Maybe not interested in girls. So, no children at all for William Rufus. Zero. Zero. Big fat zero. Never good. So that's a total of forty-four point five for William Rufus. Not at all bad. Not too bad. So now we come on to our final category. The Rex Factor! Arguments in favour for William Rufus are going to be probably a similar lines to Edgar Peaceable, force of personality. That's yeah. where he comes out the best, because he, much more than William the Conqueror, and probably more than a lot of the kings that we've had before, you get a real sense of a character. Well, I, I do now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> before, I, I was misinformed. I, I can't believe it's the same person. Um, but... I mean, I know I lean too heavily towards the battle nesting, but there wasn't any <clears throat> great event that people could rally round him mm. for to give him a certain, you know, a bit of yeah. a bit of mystery, um, and yeah, a bit of a bad king though that might still work in his favour. Mm. I, I, I can't see it. The problem for him really is the fact that he dies at the height of his powers, because we said he's got all these plans for what he's going to do. Mm. And that probably really would have seen him dramatically increase his territories, really start to dominate Europe yeah. rather than just these two territories. But he dies before he gets the chance. Yeah. So he had lots of plans and he had lots of potential to do it, but he Did gets it. killed before yeah. he can. And that's the problem. If you want the Rex Factor, you have to actually mm. get it done. Yeah. And he doesn't have any achievement. Whether it be Mataliness, he's got all the chivalry, but he doesn't actually get done anything done. Subjectivity annoys the monks, but he doesn't really bother doing any law no. or anything like that 
it's good scandal, but it's not scandal that breaks the mould of society and changes the course of English history. So it's just entertaining, but to no real avail. Yeah, it is entertaining. But each box has stuff there, but none of it is enough. Indeed. So, final judgment. We both have to say yes. Ali, does he have the X Factor? No, no, no. And I would agree, he does not have the X Factor. But he was a fun chap. Yeah, he was an interesting chap. Yeah. Yeah, well well worth factoring in. Indeed, he was a, a good one to do. Well done, William Rufus. Bad luck, but we had fun. <laughs> yeah. So, next time, it will be his brother, Henry I. Right. Uh, but until then, goodbye for me. Goodbye for me.